You can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 29. Genesis 29. And hopefully you also have a handout from the back table. If you don't, now might be just a fine time to, to stand up and go grab one. I usually start our morning sermons right now this way. In our walk through Genesis, <laughs> here we are. We are still in the story of Jacob. And, uh, yeah, we've been in Genesis a long time. Don't apologize for that. But it is chapter 29. And we are, we are looking at God's covenant with Abraham working itself out in the lives of Isaac, the promised heir to Abraham, and then in the life of Isaac's heir, Jacob. Of course, Jacob has had a lot to learn, and he still has a lot to learn, where we are in this storyline. Jacob and his mother, Rebecca used deceit, scheming, manipulation, plotting to get um, the blessing of the, really the blessing of the firstborn that would go with the birthright, to get that from Jacob's slightly older twin, <laughs> uh, the firstborn, Esau. Esau was a profane man, and God in his providence was taking away um, the birthright and blessing from Esau, and yet Jacob had to learn that God didn't need his schemes. And in our last time in Genesis, Genesis 28, we saw Jacob have this dream at Bethel. God gave him the dream in which God revealed himself in his grace to Jacob. He made no mention there of Jacob's sins, but God in his grace simply gave him his promises. And Jacob realized this, this holy scene which God had showed him at Bethel, and he said, this is, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he set up a memorial stone there. Jacob committed himself based on God's free promises to him. He committed himself to the Lord as his God and as a worshiper of this God. And he even gave a, a vow. You might call it a vow of thanksgiving for God's promises that uh, as God did indeed fulfill these promises to to keep Jacob and bring him back to the promised land one day, uh, Jacob said, I'll give God a tenth of everything he gives me. But you remember the whole context, the larger context of that was that Jacob had to leave home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him now. But he was sent out with his father Isaac's blessing. He was sent by his father Isaac to go get a wife from uh, from... Mm -hmm. Jacob's uncle Laban in Haran. And so our text today is the scene when Jacob actually arrives hundreds of miles away from his homeland in Haran. And he meets his uncle Laban. He also meets Laban's daughters. We're, I'm titling the, the sermon this morning, The Schemer Outschemed. The Schemer Outschemed. Let's read, starting in verses 1 through 14 of Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. 
As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone in the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? That, that of course, was Jacob's uncle, his mother Rebekah's brother. They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So here in verses 1 through 14, we have Jacob's introduction to Rachel and Laban. Jacob's introduction to Rachel and Laban. You might recall some familiar things about this scene. This isn't the first time in Genesis where someone goes to a well to find a bride, is it? This was involved with the story of Jacob's mother, or his father and mother. Isaac needed a wife, and so Abraham, Isaac's father, sent his most trusted servant, his chief servant, to find a wife for Isaac. And the girl he found at a well in the same area was Rebecca. But in that case, Abraham's servant, as uh, Meredith Klein points out, Abraham's servant arrived with an impressive caravan on that first occasion. Here, Jacob arri arrives just by himself. That's a difference. But, as Mr. Klein says, there were remarkable similarities too, such as the meeting of the bride-to-be at the well, a plain token of God's special providential direction. The Lord was keeping his Bethel promise. The Lord brought... Um, Jacob's wife, as we'll see, one of his wives, <laughs> the Lord brought Rachel right to the place where Jacob was approaching the area on that very day at that very time. And, of course, Rachel is introduced as a shepherdess of her father's sheep. As Andrew Steinman mentions, that's a clue that she was young and unmarried. That would have tipped Jacob off in this situation. She was caring for her father's sheep. Maybe it's a little uh, ironic that Rachel's name means you, E-W-E, -E, like a female sheep. <laughs> uh, that's what her name means. But, as John Currid mentions, in any event, Jacob obviously wants to talk with her alone. 
So as he's talking with these shepherds who point out, yeah, we know Laban, and look, that's his daughter Rachel coming with the sheep. Uh, as Jacob talks with them, he, he wants to talk with her alone, so he accuses the shepherds of, of shirking their duty. Because they're just hanging around the well. They're hanging about while the sun is still high, and there's time for work to be done. But the shepherds, depending how you look at this, there may have been some truth in what they said, but maybe it was sort of an excuse to... It's hard to say. Um, They say, well, the flocks have to all arrive and then we water them all together because that stone's too big to roll away uh, without a bunch of us doing it together. (laughs) One man's not going to move that stone off the well. That's too much work for one flock. Well, we already know that Jacob is competitive, right? Jacob is competitive. We've seen this before in a not-so-good light. But here he puts that quality to good use because he removes the stone which none of the shepherds would attempt to move on his own. Jacob says, I'll show them a thing or two and I'll show Rachel too. So he goes, that stone that we all, we all need to be here to move that stone. Jacob goes and moves it himself. <laughs> and he shows up the surrounding men in that way and he renders service to Rachel. As his mother, Rebekah, had watered Abraham's servants' camels, so Jacob now waters Rachel's flock. He shows himself a hard worker, um, makes a good first impression, and then he greets Rachel as a long-lost kinsman. Um, it's said there, in the, after he watered Laban's sheep that were with Rachel, it says, verse 11, then Ra- Jacob kissed Rachel, and wept aloud. And of course, in the context of the ancient Near East, this is probably not a full-on kiss on the lips, um, but more of a uh, the sort of kiss that uh, relatives would give. Again, later it says that Laban, his uncle, kissed him, too. <laughs> so, um, Rachel doesn't seem to react here either as if there's anything improper. This, this stranger comes up and plants one on her lips. That's not what's happening. Um, But he kisses her as a long-lost kinsman, and he weeps aloud. Again, part of the culture. Um, Expressing emotion that I made it on this journey of hundreds of miles to my relative's house. Now I'm with family again. And, of course, Rachel's reaction is to run and tell her dad. Much as Rebecca ran and told her family when Abraham's servant showed up. But it's also interesting that in the, the earlier story of Abraham's servant finding a wife for Isaac, at each stage where God obviously works to bring events together just right, the servant pauses and he worships God in the midst of all that. He gives credit to God. It's, it's interesting that Jacob doesn't, isn't recorded as doing any of that. Um, as Richard Belcher says, Uh, Although Jacob weeps aloud because he successfully completed his journey, there's no praise or worship of the Lord as there was by Abraham's servant. Although Jacob's journey began well, with the restatement of the promises of God and the assurance of God's presence, Jacob still has a lot to learn about trusting in God and not in his own abilities. There's a definite flavor throughout this particular chapter of Jacob just, uh, again, sort of living by his wits, Not that he's doing anything wrong, per se, but there's no mention of the Lord 
for a while here. And it just seems interesting that um, perhaps Jacob is, is trusting more in his own abilities for the time being. But in any case, he's introduced to Rachel and then to Laban. Laban acknowledges, yes, you are my bone and my flesh. And so Jacob stays with the family for a month. Stays with the family for a month. He's provided for there. And remember, Isaac, Jacob's dad, sent him to Laban to marry one of Laban's daughters. That's what Isaac had said. That's the mission. So, that makes sense of what Jacob does next. Um, But he does it in response to what Laban says after he's been there a month. Let's read verses 15 through 20 about Jacob's service to Laban for Rachel. Verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Apparently Jacob's helping with the flocks and things of that nature with the family. So, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, I'll come back to that word for weak later. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So Laban, after a month, says, Jacob, it's not right that I should just uh, take advantage of you as my relative, just being here and uh, helping me out. Um, Of course, Laban was obviously providing food for him, that sort of thing. But Laban says, you should have wages. So tell me what your wages should be. But as Meredith, Meredith Klein mentions here again, under a show of generosity... Laban reduced Jacob to a hired hand and exploited Jacob's love for Rachel to elicit a labor contract very favorable to himself. Tactics reminiscent of Jacob's own manipulating of Esau, he says. Um, it's true, right from the beginning here, especially if, if, you, if you look at the story later and then read backwards, right from the beginning, Laban, is, Laban has something up his sleeve. First of all, he's, he's bringing Jacob under him as his full dependent. Now Jacob works for him for wages. So he's now under Laban's authority in a greater sense. Um, and so now Jacob is going to be a hireling if, if he gets wages. But Jacob says the only wages he wants is that if he works seven years for Laban, he can marry Rachel, who is Laban's younger daughter of the two. Now, John Currid mentions the translation here that Leah had weak eyes. And he thinks, and I think he may be on to something here, he says, numerous translations describe Leah as having weak eyes, which is often understood as meaning that she had poor vision or that her eyes lacked luster. She didn't have sparkling eyes. In reality, the Hebrew word means soft, delicate, dainty. 
Leah, he says, has pretty eyes. Rachel's beauty, on the other hand, resides in her form and her whole appearance, literally fair of form and fair of sight, not just in her eyes. So however you look at that, whether it's that Leah had didn't look didn't look good in any way, <laughs> and that her eyes lacked a sparkle, or whether you see it as Leah having some beauty, especially in her eyes, but Rachel was more beautiful than her. In any case, it, it talks about the fact that Rachel was more outwardly attractive than her sister Leah. Leah was the older, Rachel was the younger. And Jacob loved Rachel, not Leah. And so that's why he asks for Rachel and not Leah. By the way, it also seems like Jacob's offer of seven years' service for Rachel seems like that is probably a, a very generous offer because Laban doesn't barter with him at all. He just accepts the offer. Like, yeah, that's that sounds good to me. <laughs> Seven whole years of work out of this guy if I just give him my daughter. So Laban agrees. Then we come to verses 21 through 30 where we see more clearly Laban's manipulation of Jacob. Laban's manipulation of Jacob. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Interesting that Jacob seems to initiate this. He has to bring it up at the end of seven years. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? <coughs> Excuse me. Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so. And completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than, or you could translate that even perhaps rather than, Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. This little part of the text makes absolutely no sense to us today, does it? How could you have a whole wedding and have the wrong girl? Especially when it talked about how they look different, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> how could this happen? Well, um, commentators are pretty well agreed that this probably reflects the common practice of heavily veiling the bride some of these cultures. Um, you might see the eyes right here or something, I don't know, but that's probably about all you see. And uh, so here's what happened. Laban did what he was supposed to do. He made a, a wedding feast and gathered all the people of the place. Everyone in the community would be part of this. So he throws a big party. This is the actual wedding, though the betrothal was already understood until this point. And now it's the wedding night. It's time for the marriage to be consummated. And 
the tent, well, we don't know if it's a tent or a house, actually. Laban had a house, it said. But anyway, you know, this is before <clears throat> artificial lighting. It's in the evening, it says, when Jacob gets alone with Leah. It is dark, apparently. Really dark. And wouldn't be surprised if Jacob had too much to drink, honestly, with all the wine flowing as they did at these things. So, it makes at least more sense to the original audience in the ancient Near East than it does to us. Um, but still, Jacob was shocked in the morning. And this was all done, you know, um, everything was done, quote-unquote, properly. Laban uh, gave, apparently as part of a dowry, uh, to his daughter Leah, he gave his servant Zilpah for her to have a maidservant. And some, that was done often as, as giving the bride a dowry. Um, but, as John Currid says, the only reasonable way to understand these verses is that Leah is veiled. Such covering of the face seems to have been customary for unmarried women in front of men. And veiling then, this is interesting, veiling then is part of Laban's deception, as is his bringing her to Jacob in the darkness of evening. This cunning plot parallels Jacob's plot to steal the blessing from Esau. As Isaac was blind to Jacob's stealth, so now Jacob is blind to Laban's trickery. Earlier, Jacob had taken advantage of the fact that his father couldn't, couldn't tell the difference by sight between his two sons. Now Jacob is, himself is manipulated because he can't tell the difference in the dark between the two girls. In his own family, Jacob had manipulated and deceived to displace his older sibling. And he'd done that first by means of a pot of stew and then by means of a feast that he prepared for his dad. And now Jacob himself is manipulated so that the reverse happens. The older sister takes the place of the younger as the, as a result of a wedding feast. So though what was done to Jacob was very, very wrong, still, providentially, Jacob is experiencing exactly the sort of thing he had done to others before, isn't he? So now he gets in this position where he's not in a very good bargaining position. And Laban has this lame excuse when Jacob protests, what have you done to me? Why did you do this? Laban says, well, didn't you know, is <laughs> the idea. It, it's not the custom here for us to give the younger daughter away in marriage before we give the older girl. It was just a misunderstanding. But it's okay. Finish the week. You, you had to have like a, a bridal week after a wedding. Uh, fulfill the week with Leah. Spend the week with her. And then a week later, you'll get Rachel too. But not two for the price of one. You still have to work for me another seven years, you understand. But Jacob still loves Rachel. And he's in no mood to give up on that now when it looks like he could have her in a week. So Jacob gives in. He agrees to this rotten deal. Another seven years after the fact for Rachel. And now Jacob is married to Two women who are each other's sisters. 
It's interesting, later in the law of Moses, God makes a special point when he's talking about um, things like incest and things that should not happen among his people. He makes a special point of not doing, not repeating this situation again in Israel. Leviticus 18 and verses 17 through 18. Verse 17 just gives you some of the context. God is saying, You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. And then it says, Leviticus 18, 18, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. God lets us know later, your forefather Jacob was tricked into this, but this should not be the normal among you. This should never happen among you in Israel. This is a bad situation. Ladies, try to imagine being married to the same man as your sister's married to. Think how that would work out. Especially when your husband was tricked into marrying one of you and he only wanted the other one. This is bad. And, of course, we're not going that far in the text, but there's lots of problems immediately because of it. Jacob is in a fix. But again, God is giving him a taste of what Jacob had given to others already. But that's not all God's doing. Again, I'm trying not to get too far ahead of the story, but... As Andrew Steinman puts it, despite the wrong that was done to Jacob, indeed, through the wrong that was done to him, God will bring forth a large and prosperous family. So, in other words, while God is using circumstances to severely chastise Jacob, he's also setting it up to actually fulfill his promises in a, bit, in a bigger way. He told Jacob, I will multiply your descendants as the dust of the earth just as he promised Abraham. And it's because Jacob marries both Rachel and Leah, and later he takes uh, each of their maidservants as a concubine, that he then has the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, uh, speaking historically, uh, and hypothetically, of course, if Jacob had never married Leah, we would not have the tribe of Judah. Or the tribe of Levi, for that matter. Or a bunch of other tribes. (laughs) So God has good purposes even in this, even beyond chastising Jacob. But the road is intentionally hard to teach Jacob some things too. All right. So that's the text explained. Let's apply the text. And I forgot to mention at the very beginning the big idea. I'm sorry about that. But here I will state the big idea of the text. And that is, I think, that God ordains all things for the good of his people. But that includes painful lessons. So we need both parts of that. God ordains all things for the good of his people. But that includes painful lessons. It's all true at the same time. Even the painful lessons are for our good. But they can be painful. 
Let me break this down a little bit. First of all, just that first part, that God ordains all things for the good of his people. Let's say that a different way, as you see there in your handout. God orchestrates all events to fulfill what he has promised us. Absolutely everything that happens in our life or in the history of the world is part of God's plan to fulfill his promises to his people. John Currid has a really interesting um, way of applying this to Jacob's story here. He says, Many of the elements of the story in the present section appear at first sight to be mere coincidence. Jacob happens to come across a field with sheep in it. The field happens to have some workers who happen to know Laban. Then Rachel, the daughter of Laban, just happens to be coming to the very well, uh, to the well in that very field with sheep to be watered. Oh, how we forget the providence of God when we read stories like this in Scripture. R. Cecil put it this way. We are too apt to forget our actual dependence on providence for the circumstances of every instant. The most trivial events may determine our state in the world. Turning up one street instead of another may bring us in company with a person whom we should not otherwise have met. And this may lead to a train of other events which may determine the happiness or misery of our lives. So again, John Currid, at the time of the event, Jacob may not have seen them as the providences of God. As John Flavel so eloquently says, some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. The same is true of any Christian life. One need only look back over time to see the hand of God working in even the most mundane and trivial matters of our lives. That's very true. Because when God says in Ephesians 1 and verse 11 that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, he means it. Ephesians 1.11, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The counsel, the, the, the plan, the decision of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Or Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But then, of course, Paul expands on what he means by working together for good. For those whom he foreknew whom God set his electing love on in the beginning, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So it's God's plan that his elect be made like his Son in their character. And Paul goes on, those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. So God works all things together for our greatest good, which is conformity to the image of Christ. But all things includes the most mundane details of our lives. It includes, like someone said here in the quotation, it includes which street you turn down at a particular moment. It includes all the seemingly random events that make you meet certain people and not others. It includes all the events that brought you here to sit in that very seat today where you are. 
It includes who you ended up marrying, no matter how that happened. All the details that we think mundane, they're part of God's plan. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even a sparrow falling to the ground dead is part of God's meticulous plan. And so he says next, But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God has all the details of your life as as his child down to the very number of hairs on your head. He has it all not just as knowledge, something that he just knows, but he has it all as part of his plan that he's working together for your good and his glory. One of the most outstanding expressions of this in Scripture, of course, is Psalm 139. You can turn there. Psalm 139, where David starts to really think through this doctrine. God's infinite, unsearchable knowledge of him and plan for him and thoughts toward him and presence with him everywhere he goes. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 18. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. That is, God has conducted a thorough search of every inch of who David is. He knows him better than David knows himself. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. It's as if wherever David is going, God's already there ahead of him. And God's behind him. And God's right there with him all at once. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Verse 6. Such knowledge is too Wonderful for me, too full of wonder. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, references to east and west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, And the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. Now David's pondering the fact that God is the one who put him together before he was born. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And what David says next in verse 16, I think the the modern translations actually get better from the Hebrew. They, They express it better. It says, In your book were written 
every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. God wrote down in his book, as it were, all the days he put together for us before any of them ever came to pass. And how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God has infinitely more thoughts about you than you have ever had in your life about anything. So take comfort, Christian. Nothing happens to you except that which comes from your Heavenly Father's perfect love. And if you are in Christ, as we've preached often from the gospel here, from this pulpit, if you're in Christ, there is nothing but love in God towards you. His justice has been satisfied at the cross. If you are in Christ, if you've believed in Jesus Christ and repentance from your sins and you cling to him, And the only thing God ever expresses towards you in Christ is love. As we'll say in a moment, of course, that includes some painful lessons. But it's all love. He orchestrates all events to fulfill what he has promised you in Christ. So if you've got that, then we can have the proper context for the next statement, right? God orchestrates some events in the midst of all the events that he he uh, orchestrates to fulfill what he's promised us. He orchestrates some events to give us what we've given others. Now, let me break this down in a number of ways. Here I'm speaking not just to believers. I was speaking more specifically to those in Christ with that first point of application Because the Bible does not say that God works all things together for the good of everyone on earth. It doesn't say that. It says he works all things together for the good of those who love him because they've been called according to his purpose. Those whom God has chosen to salvation and who will come to him in repentant faith. It's for them that God works all things together for good. But now I'm backing up a bit and speaking to even... an even broader audience. No matter who you are, God orchestrates some events to give us what we have given others. You see there in your outline, I'm breaking this up in different ways. This applies to you in one way if you are still a sinner outside of Christ. It applies to you a different way if you're a Christian, a true believer. So first of all, let me speak to unbelievers or If you're a Christian listening, let's talk about unbelievers and how God orchestrates events in their case. The first way in which God orchestrates some events to give us what we've given others is that he gives just reprisals for stubborn rebels. In God's justice, he manifests his justice And he warns the world that he is a righteous God, even sometimes in the circumstances of this life. God often 
Though we don't have perfect justice in this life, yet God often lets the conduct of the wicked come back to haunt them. And what they've given to others, God will let return to them often, even in this life. Remember the book of Proverbs, how it says this over and over in different ways? Proverbs 17, verse 13. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Now, these statements in the book of Proverbs are Proverbs, and so they're general statements about the way things generally often happen in this life. They're not always an absolute statement of exactly what will happen in every case, but this is a general principle at work in God's world. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. If you treat others a certain way, God will often bring that treatment back to you. That's the way God's world often works. Proverbs 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. If you don't listen to the cry of others for help, you may find yourself crying for help and no one listening. And that's God's providence in your life. To show you your sin. Proverbs 22, verse 16. Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. This is God doing this. Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. (laughs) Clearly, what you do to others is going to happen to you, most likely. Proverbs 28.10 Whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit. But the blameless will have a goodly inheritance, it says. But, but, and I didn't include this in this original handout, I added a text here because I, I don't want to miss a key point here. Reprisals in this life are nothing compared to the coming judgment. When you experience in this life your own evil conduct coming back to visit you, it's just a foretaste of the judgment to come. This is why we need Jesus' blood and righteousness to deliver us from God's justice. Because we've all done evil. We've all done evil against our fellow men. And we've all done evil against our creator and sustainer, who's our sovereign and our judge. And we'll face him one day for all of that. Romans 2, verse 3, the apostle Paul writes, Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then Paul speaks of this day of judgment, this day of wrath, he calls it. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. 
To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So first of all, before I get to more specifically what was happening in, what was happening in Jacob's case, first of all, if you don't belong to God as a redeemed sinner, you have every reason to, to fear. God will bring your evil conduct your evil conduct back on your own head. <clears throat> but now I want to talk to Christians. As I said in the last sermon, I think Jacob is converted at this point. Certainly God has given him his promises. God has claimed Jacob for his own. And yet, just because we belong to God as his special people, doesn't mean that he won't bring our conduct back upon us in some form. Because we also have to consider God's loving corrections for his wayward children. Jacob needed to feel what it was like to be manipulated, as he had done. He needed to know what it felt like to experience great loss through the deception of someone else. And we need that sometimes, too, when we have wronged others. We need to experience being wronged in a similar way. Perhaps the most extreme example of God correcting a saint by returning his conduct on his own head is the example of how God corrected King David. I think most of you know this account, right? How David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to David and, of course, first the prophet told David a parable to get David's emotions engaged in a similar scenario and David condemned to death the man in the scenario that's given him and then Nathan says you are the man and in that, in that same setting here's what Nathan passes on to David as God's word to him 2nd Samuel 12 verse 9 why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor turned out to be his son Absalom. And he shall lie with your wives at the side of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, listen to this. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Meaning in God's sight, your sin is removed. You're forgiven. You shall not die. 
Nevertheless, Nathan says, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. God intentionally brought death and destruction and betrayal and immorality and mayhem into David's household providentially because of what David had done. And be sobered, Christian, because you can sin as great a sin as David did. It's possible. In a moment of despising God. And, putting it more in the context of Jacob, if you treat others a certain way, it may be for your best good that God makes you experience the very same thing. So don't be flippant because you are a child of God. Don't be flippant about sin. And don't think, I can get away with anything now. I'm forgiven. Yes, you are, and God's going to bring you to repentance as well when you're stubborn. Hebrews 12 tells us that we should expect, because we do have a loving Heavenly Father, we should expect His chastisement, His discipline, as part of His love. Hebrews 12, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but, rather, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So that's the sobering news. But as we come toward the end here there's two more things to mention because it's not just that god is out to pay back everyone who's done wrong god also delights to pay back those who have done well and just as we said that even in this life the wicked often get their comeuppance so in this life whether or not we're talking about true believers God has earthly rewards for prudent people. If people live in God's world in harmony, and in basic, at least outward, harmony with the way God's made the world to work, there's rewards for that. There are earthly rewards from God for prudent people. You know, when God says that the second greatest commandment is to love your, love your neighbor as yourself, he takes that seriously. Again, why do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because they're made in God's image. They reflect God's glory. No matter how bad of a sinner they are. <laughs> no matter what, what um, weaknesses they have. They're still made in God's image. 
And God commands us, if you love me and you say you love me, love your neighbor as yourself. And God takes that seriously. Seriously enough to make us experience the bad things we've done to others at times, but also to reward us when we treat others well. And so even in an outward sort of righteousness in which uh, people treat their fellow men well, God rewards that in this world. Proverbs eleven seventeen: A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. <laughs> Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25 One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. That's a principle in God's world. God is a good God. And he loves to heap benefits on us when we are good to his creatures. Likewise, Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22, 8 through 9. Whoever sows injustice will, be, will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. But then as we narrow the focus again to God's true people, his true children, God has very good gifts in this life and the next for his true children. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 27? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. But he's not done. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus is using the illustration of a big basket. And if in your actions toward others as a believer, you pour a little bit in the basket that you give to others. You can expect a little bit in your basket. But if you refuse to pass judgment on others and take God's place in that, if you refuse to condemn others, if you forgive others, if you give to others, God will give that back to you. And when God fills your basket, 
it will be good measure, pressed down, shaken together to get as much in that basket as he can get in there, and running over. And he says, that will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Do you remember when you're, maybe when you're being wronged, as Jesus says, when you have enemies? Do you remember that if you treat them well, nonetheless, first of all, you're reflecting God accurately. And second, God promises rewards for that. God is a good God. Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. And listen to the application. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So if you're a Christian, God doesn't simply tell you to put off the old man in the sense of doing wrong to others. Our goal is not to simply do no harm. Our goal is to imitate our Father in being kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And when we do that, God can reward us in wonderful ways when we treat others that way. Let's close with Matthew 25. And you might want to turn there. Matthew 25. Because again, this dynamic will show up even at the final judgment. When Christ, and, and I, I've preached on this text before, um, and... It's a long sermon. There's a lot here. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. So I obviously don't have time to give all the context here. But when Christ returns in glory, it says he'll gather all the nations before him. He'll separate his people from those who are not his people. And then he'll demonstrate by what they did in this life why they do or do not belong to him. He'll demonstrate the fact that they do have faith or they don't have faith. That shows itself up in their works. Matthew 25, verse 31. Notice how even in the last judgment, people will be judged in a sense according to how they've treated others, particularly God's people. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. As Revelation 20 puts it, the dead will be judged according to their works. Those who are justified in Christ, God is able to put on display all the good works in their life wrought by his grace and show that they really do belong to him. It's evident by how they care for his people, how they treat his people. But those who mistreat those made in God's image, particularly God's people, they'll answer for that one day. People often have this nagging objection in their mind. I know you say God sends the wicked their comeuppance, but a lot of people seem to get away with it in this life. That's true. A lot of people do seem to get away with things in this life. But there's a day of judgment coming and God will return all the conduct of wicked people on their heads then. Be sure you're ready for that day of judgment, that you know Jesus Christ and that your life reflects that. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we've said a lot today. Help us to understand that it matters to you how we treat others. Help us when you providentially put things in our life to remind us of what we've done to others wrongly. Help us to be humble before you and to learn the lesson and to repent. Help us not to resent your fatherly discipline when we are your people. And help us to have a proper respect for you, Father, as our Father. And not sin thinking there will be no, no consequences. Help us to walk in the, in the proper fear of you so that we can have a close relationship with you. And so that even when you bring hard circumstances into our lives, sometimes to remind us of our sins, so that we can grow in holiness because of it. And Lord, help those here today without Christ to understand that they all stand accountable before you for what they do in this life. And whether they have a taste of it in this life or not, in the life to come, they will face you for how they have not loved their neighbor as their self. Lord, help us to, to have proper conviction of sin, but don't leave us there. Bring us to Christ 
Help us to trust in Christ to take away our sins in your sight. Help us for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.